you right now. Call it up to all every group. We gon' make it all happen right here, right now. Call it up to all every group. We gon' make it all happen right here, right now. Call it up to all every group. We gon' make it all happen right here, right now. Hey everybody, welcome to Eggs. Our guest today is Andrew Schwab. Andrew is the lead singer of for hardcore rock band Project 86. Project 86 is a Orange County-based band who's shared the stage with the likes of all your favorites, including 30 Seconds to Mars, Seven Dust, Trapped, and so many more over the course of their 20-plus year career. The band's recently released, uh, at the end of 2017, the latest album, Sheep Among Wolves, and uh, we're thrilled to talk about the album, the band, and everything else with Andrew. Uh, so without further ado, let me uh, introduce Andrew Schwab. Hey Howdy Andrew. guys, thanks for having me. Of course, thank you so much for making some time for us. We yeah, know it's uh, really difficult to it. fit us in. Yeah, no problem. Um, so your name is uh, Project 86, and the term 86 kind of stems from like getting 86 from a bar, you know, like getting kicked out and rejected. Can you talk a little bit uh, about why you chose 86 and why you felt that was a good name for the band? Sure. Uh, back when we started the band, which... You know, this is going to date both me and the band. Don't worry, it dates us too. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah. No, we actually uh, we, we remember you guys when you were young. So, don't, so don't, yeah, yeah. there's no okay. judgment here. <laughs> okay, so when we started the band, it was so cool to have you know a word with a number with it. There were so many bands <laughs> that came up during that time. Blink one eighty two, Blink one eighty two, some forty one. So many bands. Orange nine millimeter. Oh, I remember those guys. <laughs> yeah. So. That was really cool to us. So in the beginning of the band, we only referred to it as the project because we couldn't couldn't think of a band name. Band names are really hard. Oh, yeah. So, no, it, we go yeah. through this with everyone. Well, everyone has a hard time choosing a name. Yeah, and this is before the day of the uh, online band name generator. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, nothing like that existed way back when in the 50s. So. <laughs> <clears throat> we uh, very early on in the rehearsal phase decided that it would be cool to have the word project with a number after it. And so the trick was finding a number that hadn't been used and that had some sort of, you know, creative significance to what we were trying to do. Uh, the number 86 speaks well, you know, it, it sounds good when you say it. Uh, and then, as I looked into kind of what that phrase meant a little bit more, the idea of rejection sort of kept cropping up because that's basically what you're saying when you 86 something, you're rejecting it, you're removing it. Uh, and so the thought process was, you know, does this apply to what we're trying to do? Well, the answer was yes, for sure, because we had always said that we wanted to have a certain specific level of quality control with the music and do the music that we wanted to make on our own terms, not because it was trendy or fashionable or because we were trying to write songs for the radio or a label or anything like that. We essentially wanted to stick to our guns as a band and do the music that we liked because we felt really strongly that if we were passionate about the music that we were making, then other your people fans would be, be too. as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so whether or not that meant we were writing commercial music we felt like we would have a really dedicated fan base if we just wrote music that we loved. And we felt like, you know, the bands that we loved, other people loved at that time, and the music that we were trying to write, you know, it was an organic thing. So the idea behind Project 86 was accepted or rejected, 
you know, we're going to stick to our guns and do this the way that we think we should. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's actually a, a better explanation of the uh, of the band than most people give us. So that that's interesting. So the band was formed by you and Randy Torres. Is that correct? Well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, basically, I had been trying to find guys to play with for a couple of years, and so it was always kind of my pursuit of finding you know the right guys. Um, Randy was the first guy that I recruited and he was only 15 years old at the time. Well, wasn't he like a sophomore <laughs> and, in high school or something? Yeah, just, yeah, he was, he was playing an acoustic guitar on a snowboarding trip that I was on in a hotel room <laughs> and I saw that he could play and I just literally said to him, Hey man, you play pretty well. And he said, Oh, thanks. And I said, have you ever been in a band? And he said, no, I said, would would you like to be in a band? And he said, he thought about it for a couple seconds. I was like, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and I said, okay, man, leave it up to me. I'll take care of everything. <laughs> <laughs> so and then, that's sort of how the band functioned from that point forward. <laughs> so from there, did you go ahead and just continue recruiting in this way? Did you guys do exactly. something solo, just the two of you or what did you do? No, no, no. It was how did the band finding, evolve? It was a matter of finding the other players. And so, uh, the original lineup, uh, the original bass player we had, we lost very, very early on before we ever even played a show. Uh, and the original drummer that we had, we moved to bass. And then I had a friend who played drums uh, in a couple of other bands. And it took quite a while to pull him away enough from his other bands to give this band a shot. But once we start, once we had a stable lineup and started rehearsing, it was it was fairly serious right off the bat. So, um, did you play any instruments or, or are you just a wordsmith and just knew your role from the get go? I've always been a songwriter, uh, in my head. Uh, so I've always played a role in the structure of the music from top to bottom, especially the lyrics and the vocals. But, uh, I've always, I've always had the ability to write songs with my ear, but I've never been a trained musician and I don't play an instrument, if that makes sense. So yeah, no, if you were does. to listen to my voice memos on my phone, you would get a clear <laughs> picture, but I will never show those to anyone. <laughs> is that your kind of... They're totally ridiculous. Is that your go-to where if you, you, you drive and have an idea, just pull out your phone and hit record? Exactly. And, uh, so, And I literally say to myself, okay, the drums will do this, and then I beatbox some kind of beat. And then say the bass will do this, guitar will do this, you know, and the vocal will do this. Huh. And so a lot of a lot of the songs, especially on the last three albums, have begun that way. And ironically enough, some of the best, most popular songs that we've written or I've written have started with that process. Just um, being stuck in traffic and getting an idea. <laughs> well, if you're in Orange <laughs> County, I'm sure you're in traffic plenty. So um so let's, I guess, kind of go from there and let's take it backwards a little bit. So let's talk about just you. Where where did you grow up? Where are you from originally? I actually grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania in between Erie and Pittsburgh in a really small town called Meadville. And uh, I, I grew up as an only child, so I had a lot of space and time for imagination. Music was something that was always a huge part of my life, even from a super early age. Uh, I had other relatives in the family who played music, so I was I was always exposed to a lot of music, rock and roll, growing up. Uh, I think the first 
um, the first piece of music that I ever owned was the 45, the 45 single of Queens. Another one bites the dust. <laughs> and <laughs> nice. I think I was six years old when I, ha- I had that and I just loved the song. So I think I asked my grandparents to buy me the single. And so I had a record player and I would listen to a lot of classic rock as a, as a kid, um, you know, early elementary school. And then when I got older, later elementary school into junior high, I really listened to, uh, I guess the bands that were a little bit more dangerous, um, for that time, bands like the Beastie Boys and Run DMC and Metallica and Slayer, just whatever I wasn't allowed to listen to. Yeah, I that's pretty much what towards. I gravitated to towards. Yeah. As well. yeah. And so it ended up being a lot of metal and a lot of hip hop rap. Um, and I really loved both of both of those genres of music when I was young. And so the the you know, the music I ended up playing echoed a lot of those early influences. Yeah, and we notice that like as you go back and you listen to some of the older albums, there is a little bit more of kind of that rap core vibe or a little bit more of that maybe hip hop influence. Uh, it seems to have gone a little bit more to the side the the more mature the band got. Well, uh, I, I think wasn't there a, kind of like a time frame where you were kind of put in that category when really you weren't? I, I remember reading something about like uh, you quoted like saying, hey, Beck raps on his albums, but he's not considered a rap artist. And that was kind of your equivalent of saying, you know, like, yeah, we do a little bit here and there, but we're not necessarily a rap core band. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so... There was a moment there where those two forces coming together was really cool. And you had a few bands come up who did that sound the right way. And those were obviously the bands that predated us, bands like Deftones. Mm-hmm. Yep. <clears throat> Deftones, maybe Rage, Limp Bizkit. Rage, not Limp Bizkit. No, <laughs> no. No, no. I always despised that band. Because they came along shortly they were the beginning of the, all the bad and so yeah. when it was just rage against the machine deftones mm-hmm. downset orange nine millimeter those are all bands who were were coming from the right angle with it uh and then once corn and limp biscuit happened the whole thing went a, a totally different sort of went sideways yeah and very early on when we were starting the band we had the conversation like you know, this, this kind of music is kind of very current, but it has a short lifespan. And so you can hear those influences on the first couple of project records, but we made a very conscious decision to distance ourselves from all the lame new metal, basically. Now mm-hmm. we'll always be known as for that because we came up yeah, with a lot of, of when those bands up, yeah. and we toured with a lot of those bands, etc. But there was a real, decision to sort of evolve in a new direction um at one point where it was like yeah this is really lame and we're associated with all these (laughs) bands that we don't really like and more importantly a sort of subculture that was so knucklehead and so just like the opposite of what we wanted to be um because and that gets into another question the the motivation at least for me was to write aggressive music, but to do it in a thoughtful kind of way. So it's not just dudes punching each other. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. Which is, you know, rampant in, in this genre, 
But yeah. uh, but if you can find the people, you know, you've named a few like the Deftones and things like that, where there's sort of an authenticity to the way they sing and the the voice that they do it in. And uh, and I think you guys have captured that as well. Well, you're also very, you know, lyrical with a lot of your stuff. Like I, uh, as I was kind of doing some research on you, I, I um, one of your albums you kind of released like telling a story, like you were writing chapters of a book, and that to me is is I want to go back and listen. Well, we'll get into that later, but uh, I want to go back and just listen to it and like listen to the story behind it because that's kind of what I'm into. Is I I'm very lyrically. When when music is involved, I love it when the lyrics are are stuff like that, kind of like the Coheed and Cambria's, the you know that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's funny. Well, I mean, like right now, my kids are going through this uh, hip hop phase, right, where every song is a right. hip hop song, and I, I'm constantly. I mean, not a day goes by that I'm not whining or griping or whatever about what's being said. In those in those rap songs, I mean, there's nothing there, right? I mean, every song is, has the same lyrical content. Every song is, you know, money, drugs, alcohol, women, whatever. But it's those four or five four or five subjects, you know, twisted around a number of different ways. But there's like there's no authenticity, right? The uh, you know maybe the earlier rappers, more like the Beastie Boys and the and the Run DMCs of the world, as you mentioned. You know, there was a little, you know, and I don't want to sound like just old man withers, you know, talking about my old <laughs> hip hop. But um, but the hip hop now is really poor. You know, I it's, mean, it's there, there's back. some good there's beats. A few, there's there's some a good few, stuff. You have to know where to look. Yeah. I yeah. That, well, that's probably really the bigger big argument. Hip hop fan through every era of rap. And what I found is that, as you just mentioned, in the sort of first golden era of hip hop, there was a lot of authenticity. That's what was driving the music. That's what made it be- become as big as it was is because suburban white kids were finding, you know, more reality being spewed by, you know, NWA yeah. and public enemy um, than they were finding in, you know, hair metal, etc. Right. So the buying audience or the listening audience, which is a lot of times teenagers is always going to gravitate towards that thing. That's as you said, authentic. And a lot of times pushes boundaries and offends parents, etc. cetera. <laughs> um, but what I found is that um, as a fan of the music, there's always a remnant of, of good music being made in, in hip hop if you're willing to dig a little bit to find it. So like my favorite band right now is run the jewels. Yeah. I love, yeah, I love yeah. those guys. Yeah. And because they're doing it the right way and the music is legit. The production's amazing. And I, the lyrics are good, man. It's not all just like chicks and butts and yeah. you know, <laughs> well, dollars and, and, and all that. Just working with this podcast, we've come across a few like Ryan Caraveo's one, his lyrical content's amazing. There's another one called Fiki that's, up and coming that I've just kind of come across it and I like uh, his lyrical content. It's really good. Um, But anyways, uh, let's, let's change pace here a little bit. Um, In 97, you guys signed with tooth and nail records and recorded your first self-titled album called project 86. Uh, It was produced by Brian Callstrom. Uh, He was, uh, he worked with artists like offspring, Rob zombie, darkest days, social distortion, Uh, Can you talk about recording that first full length? Um, Did you choose him as a producer or is that something like tooth and nail set up? Um, And if you did choose him, why did you pick him out of other 
options? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, he was a connection that we had made through Tooth and Nail, but it was really through another band uh, uh, that we were friends with who had worked with him and sort of not found him, but were the first in that sort of world that worked with him. Um, Brian was the engineer for producer Dave Jordan. And Brian uh, passed away a few years ago. I back. know, in 2013. Um, I, I went and checked yeah. out his uh, – his Facebook page. And it was, it was crazy because I was, I was watching the video. Uh, he was, he was bouncing down a track two days before he died. And it was just weird to think that, you know, that's probably the last project he ever worked on. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really sad, man. He's super nice guy. Really fun to work with. Um, his studio looked like it was a really cool studio too. Just the, Oh, El Dorado was an amazing studio. And, for our first studio experience, I mean, we were in a multi-million dollar space, you know, where some really big records that we loved were made. I mean, he played us the, oh gosh, the two-inch tape reel of Alice in Chains' Dirt. Oh, oh man. wow. Yeah. I mean, he's, we just were right there in the space with where a lot of really big records at that time, alternative music, alternative rock records were made. Uh, I remember one day we were in the studio and the singer Dexter from Offspring came in and we got to meet him. And I mean, this was a big deal to us when sure, well, yeah. a young band and stuff. I mean, of course, Just well, starting, even now I'd be starstruck, but uh, yeah, you and know, so but that's really cool. We went from being this little, this little band from Orange County, um, right immediately sort of being exposed to the, the giants which was such a harrowing sort of thing for when you're that young. And just, I mean, our goal was just to make a record. Yeah. And then within really. the first year you're in this huge studio and yeah. uh, how did you hook up with tooth and nail? How'd they find you and what was the process of getting started with them? Yeah. Maybe even talk a little bit about the process of, okay. I mean, we're jumping around a little bit, but going back to you had been assembling this band and, and getting all these guys to come together. Let's talk about sort of forming that project and getting to the point where you're ready to to press your first album all within like a year. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, and looking back on it, things happened pretty quickly. But at the time, I remember feeling like they weren't happening fast enough because, again, I had been looking for band members for two years, and so there was a whole scene in Orange County of like underground heavy music, you know, hardcore, straight edge, mostly uh, bands. Uh, through which I met a lot of different um, musicians. And so that's sort of the scene from which the band came out of. But we had said that we wanted to do something musically that was a little bit more accessible, I guess, or commercial, not just play for like straight edge hardcore kids. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, assembled the band, started practicing seriously right away, rehearsing and writing songs. Uh, played our first show about six months after we started the band. And I really was a one-man hype machine. Uh, I was in school at the time. I was in college. And through all of our friends, the band members' friends and extended friends of friends and going to shows, we were sort of, and our schools, we were all very well connected as far as building just an initial buzz and so I remember when we played our first show, I think we were on a bill with uh, four other bands. And somehow I managed to swindle us into the third slot. Nice. Of five bands. 
having never played a show only because I could guarantee we would bring at least a couple of hundred people just on our own. Yeah. And that's just word of mouth, me creating hype about this band that I was starting, what we sounded like and just, did you know for a con- fact you could bring a hundred people or was that just kind of like, yeah. okay, no, I did. I did <laughs> just because of the amount of interest that we were garnering. I mean, I had tons of friends coming to see us at our rehearsals and then they would go back and tell, tell their friends, Oh my gosh, you know, I went and saw this band rehearse and it's a brand new band. And back then there weren't a ton of bands around. And so this is what they sound like. And these guys are going to really do something. So the hype machine was at least in our area, it was in effect very early on. And so it didn't take us very long to create a buzz in Southern California after playing a couple shows. Remember we headlined our second show and 400 people showed up. Oh, wow. That's and crazy. it was it was it was it was a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty cool. And then uh, you asked about that that evolving into signing to a label. Uh, you know, we recorded a, a demo and started sending that around and uh, sending it to labels. But really, what garnered interest was we had a lot of friends who were in bands that were signed to different labels and a few different bands who were composed of friends of ours we're already signed to Tooth and & Nail. And so not only were we sending in our demo and playing shows, but we had all these friends in bands that were selling records on the label saying you should sign these guys to the label head. And so that's why the process was a bit accelerated for us. We, we cheated. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't, though. I mean, you, you laid the groundwork by getting people hyped up. I mean, you put together a good product. You know, I mean, uh, and, and that's how business was done back then. You know, I mean, it was really reliant on word of mouth and things like that, you know. Uh, and honestly, I think it still is. You know, people, I think, try to shortcut and go through social media because it's maybe the path of least resistance. But yeah. I think ultimately it's still word of mouth, however it's spread. And, well, and, uh, and uh, Tooth and Nail was fairly new at the time. I think they were founded in like 93. And Brandon uh, was Ebel, is that his name, the guy that, that owns it? Um, I mean, only been around for a few years, started it up, um, from scratch. And I mean, he has bands on there like Under Oath, uh, MXPX, I think was on there. Emery was on there, a few other ones. Um, did you actually, how was the, the process of actually getting signed with him? Uh, was it just like head down to the offices, sit down and talk and, and sign the document and you're good to go? Or was it kind of, kind of more of a process? There were a few labels interested in us, but we had already always sort of leaned towards Tooth and Nail only because we, again, had friends that were on the label. Yeah. So that seemed like the way it was going to go. But how it actually happened was Brandon flew down to a show, expressed that he was interested in signing us, and then sent us a contract shortly thereafter. Um, I think he saw us play one other time after that. I remember him telling us that the the other members of his staff didn't want to sign us. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. In fact, his entire staff, except for maybe one person, voted no. But because he saw potential in us, uh, he wanted to sign us. Uh, and so there were a couple months there where they were on the fence or he was on the fence. And then he came and saw us at a, a festival that we played in the Northwest which at that time the label was in Seattle. So at that festival, uh, he basically said, you know, I want to sign you guys. So we got, got the contract and it was awful. It was a horrible contract. 
Um, which well, would, it's uh, your first one, and most all of them are. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's one of those. that time we didn't care because we just wanted to put out a record. We didn't really think big picture. We were just wanting to, to yeah, put, out, put looking, out our first looking to be music. signed. Yeah, and get out yeah. there. So by this point, so you're signed. You've got your first album coming out. Are you? I mean, are you, are you guys already touring? Are you on the road? We, you know, how does that work? Are you, or do you get your album done and then hit the road to support it? I mean, the thought in mind is that we wanted to be on on the road as much as possible, but uh, getting on tours, etc., took a little while. So, I mean, we were playing spot dates and picking up whatever we could pick up with the limited buzz that we had nationally, which wasn't very much when our first record was recorded. So between the time that we recorded the record and when it was released, I mean, we, we weren't touring a ton because we, we just didn't, didn't have enough of a name to get on much. Yeah. So, uh, when our record dropped, we played this big music festival in the Midwest and, that was the first time that we really solidified ourselves as sort of a national buzz in certain scenes. Um, we had a really big crowd at that festival and it was on the day our, our album came out and, um, sold out of our record there. And then, and then from there we started getting more touring opportunities. And I think, well, our, our very first real national tour was with Blindside and P.O.D. Nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, actually, one of the, the songs you did, uh, was it Six Sirens? Uh, mm-hmm. On that album, had Sony from P.O.D. on it. Um, was that a personal friend that was already signed, or was that something that Tooth and Nail kind of just kind of, hey, let's throw him on here and, and have him work on a track with you? We had developed a friendship with those guys at the music festival that we played in the Northwest, which was the one that I referred to where we uh, basically confirmed that we were going to sign with Tooth & Nail. So there was a lot. That was the first music festival we ever played. and uh, A pretty pivotal point for the band, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And there were a lot of really good relationships that developed out of of that show. But one of them, I just walked, because I had heard good things about P.O.D. and uh, I just walked up to the singer. I saw him walking around and someone told me, Oh yeah, that's what's his name from POD. And I just walked up and said, hello. And you know, told him about my band and we hung out for a while. And, you know, we became friends after that because they were local. They were, um, in San Diego and we were in Orange County. So went down there and hung out with those guys a couple of times. And then when we recorded that song, uh, Sonny and Marcos, the guitarist, came up and slept on my floor. <laughs> nice. I was in college. And then we went up in the studio and cut the track. So it was definitely an extension of um, friendships that, that had developed. Yeah, it's funny. I have mi- mixed feelings on POD. I used to manage and, well, and still do some work with a band from San Diego called Mix Mop. And uh, Mix Mob, uh, God, it's got to be maybe 2015-ish. No, 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 2005-ish. Uh, something like that. We were in a in a battle of the bands. Mix Mob and POD were the finalists to open at the Super Bowl in San Diego. It, and uh, and we ended up getting beat out by POD, which was <laughs> the real bummer. So ever since, I've been a little burnt on those guys. I like their music, but I can't respect them. It's a, you know, it's a <laughs> 
So, but, uh, but kind of funny. No, it's interesting actually to hear you because, or hear you speaking because a lot of these bands like POD and at that same time, I was working with bands in San Diego and in LA, Orange County area also. And so it's funny to hear you say names because uh, there are a lot of them that we've come across to a lot of the bands that we used to run around with. Now they were more of like a hip hop kind of sublimey 311 kind of thing. So it was a little bit different crowd, but there was a little crossover with the, uh, the POD fans. So uh, of the locals in San Diego, that's how we wound up in the, the battle of the bands thing with them. So um, that first album, your, your uh, self-titled album Pro- project 86, it sold around 50,000 copies. Um and 30,000 of those were sold before the release of your next album in 2000. Um, was that a little weird for you going from like nothing to selling 30,000 copies in two years? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, yes and no, because once you get in, in the, the game and you're with other bands that are doing things and we were always really close with the POD guys back then, uh, they were in the middle of, signing to a major and there was a lot of hype surrounding them and so we were always comparing ourselves you know to those guys and they were doing all this big stuff so we were saying to ourselves oh wow you know we need to set our sights a little higher so you know 30,000 copies was cool but we we really wanted to to take it up a notch on our second release and I think you can hear it if you listen to, to those records back to back dated as they are uh you know our sophomore release was such a step up from oh, yeah. our first release and that was uh it's called drawing black lines yeah and that yeah. really defined our career uh really a very underexposed underappreciated album in hindsight because we didn't really get a whole lot of marketing love behind it i think if we had gotten on some bigger tours we did it we did a couple but if we had, we had done a little bit more to be out there uh, and had a little bit of a more of a video push and just some of the things that most other bands were getting that we just never really got on that record um, because of the convoluted nature of our label relationships at the time. And we basically what happened was when the record was finished, we sent it around the industry and there were a bunch of major labels that wanted to license it and we ended up licensing it to Atlantic. Well, what happened was because it was only a licensing deal, Atlantic didn't view it as if we were on their label. So they didn't really want to dump much into it. And tooth and nail sort of, you know, just kind of did what they did, but they didn't put anything extra into it because they figured Atlantic was going to get behind it more. So we were kind of caught in the middle, uh, on that release. Um, but it very well could have ended up selling. I think it sold 130,000 or something, but it, it could have easily sold 300,000 if we had had just a little bit of love. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think this is the album that, uh, I was referring to earlier that, um, you, you kind of wrote in like a chapter, kind of like a story book kind of, mm-hmm. um, no, that was the one after truthless heroes. That was our third release. Oh, okay. This this was the one where you were um uh you were writing about social issues at the time like um I don't know what was You're that like? still talking about Truthless Heroes, which is our third release. We can we can talk about that. <laughs> let's you, let's just jump to that one then. <laughs> uh, anyways, um 
Okay, so with the with drawing black lines, you eventually sold around 120, 130,000 copies. Uh, you toured that year with like POD, Head PE, and I think Lincoln Park. How yeah. was it to tour with Lincoln Park? I mean, that had to be pretty crazy. Uh, well, I have a bunch of funny stories about that tour surrounding Lincoln Park, um, and they're all sort of uh, commingled with one another. They're all related to one another, but. Uh, Lincoln Park had just released their first single and their, uh, their debut album hadn't dropped yet when they were added to that tour, but they were getting a lot of radio play, uh, with their first single, which was the, the, I forget the name of the song, but it, it's, uh, take me one step closer to yeah, the edge and I'm about to break yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. that song. And so we had heard that song cause it was all over the radio <laughs> And when they were added to the to the lineup as the opening act, uh, we were like, "Oh no, that song's so annoying." <laughs> <laughs> so they jumped on the tour a, a few shows into it, and I remember waking up on our tour bus and getting off the bus and seeing their bus had showed, you know, had it was parked next to ours basically at the venue. So I thought to myself, that must be Lincoln Park. And then the door to their bus opened. And this guy that I was friends with in high school, um, so I was actually really good friends with his brother, but the three of us used to play basketball together. And so I knew this guy really well. And he jumped off the bus. You're like, what? <laughs> and I said, hey, man, what are you doing here? And he said, I play in Lincoln Park. I'm like, wow. That's cool. <laughs> And so there was, you know, an immediate connection to those guys. And, uh, you know, they were not known very well besides the radio play when they first started the tour. But then their album came out and they were selling like ridiculous amounts of copies every week. And so two, three weeks into the tour, they were bigger than everybody on the tour pretty much. And, uh, Maybe POD had sold a little bit more up to that point. Uh, but the fan dynamic in the crowd would shift and evolve with each successive show. So there, I remember their manager called our manager, uh, and POD's manager and was basically saying, you know, we need to move these guys up, uh, they need to be main support and basically the other managers involved said no. So here's the opening band for the majority of the tour being essentially the band with the biggest buzz wow. on the tour. So it was <laughs> really, really funny. How long was that, that tour? Was it, uh, it was like seven weeks, I think. Okay. How funny. Yeah, no. So in, in at about the same time frame, it's funny, there's these parallel paths. So in 2000, uh, in 2000, uh, I was touring with a band called Cottonmouth Kings from Orange County. I remember and, them. And, uh, and Lincoln Park was our opener also in the same theory, in the same period of time, we did 32 shows with them. And, uh, it was funny because we experienced sort of that same moment you're talking about, like when they went from nobody to somebody, <laughs> And it all happened mm -hmm. over the course of a summer, right? When 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 I met those guys, they were uh, put, I remember they were putting little cassettes of like you know two or three songs. Uh, yeah, little, that little, was the thing back then. Yeah, man. they put a little cassette and they put it on all the tables in the venue and stuff like that. You know, they'd have their little sticker and their little cassette and stuff. And you know, and uh, by the following summer, I mean they were the biggest band in the world. 
<laughs> and so it's such a funny experience, you know, because it, it, Cottonmouth Kings did pretty well, but then, you know, nothing like Lincoln Park numbers. And, uh, and so it was, uh, it's a funny, I, I don't know, shared experience with you. That's kind of funny. So, um, so in 2002, uh, you guys went into the studio with Matt Hyde. Uh, and this is the album that I've referred to a few times about like writing the chapters of a book. Um, was this one up with Atlantic? Was this the one? Yeah. That, okay. So what had happened in between Drawing Black Lines and Truthless Heroes, which was our second and third releases, uh, our camp, attorney, management, et cetera, negotiated a buyout of our contract with Tooth and Nail. And it was, it was a pretty difficult situation for the band because we were in limbo with this buyout. But essentially what had been painted to us, especially by our attorney, was – hey, you guys are never going to make a living playing music trapped in this deal that you signed for six records or whatever it was. I think it was six or seven records. Oh, wow. Uh, And, you know, the label gets everything. You get nothing. And so the only way that you guys have a chance is if, you know, we, we get you guys bought out of this deal. And so I remember we had this big meeting with the whole staff of Tooth & Nail and our entire band and our management and we basically, you know, told them, hey, you know, these, this band, you know, we're, we're a special band, but we can't compete with all these other bands that are out there if we don't have any revenue coming into our business to, you know, up our game, basically, and live and do it the way that these bands do it, you know, whether it's, you know, doing publishing deals, you know, or all the things that goes into touring, etc. So I remember <laughs> that meeting. Uh, the, the label head, Brandon, he basically said, no, we're not going to give you guys any more money. And so our manager and our attorney kind of stonewalled him after that. And we were kind of caught in the middle of it. And so you're just hanging in limbo waiting for something. Yeah. And it just created a really tense relationship between us and tooth and nail. Um, MXPX went through something very similar. And I think some other bands have since then. It's just about money. You know, at the end of the day, the label wants to keep all the money and the band has to fight to, to try to exist and make a living. Yeah. And that's, that's what's so hard about sort of that period of time in music. And I mean, I'm sure it still exists today in some form or another, but these deals where, I mean, you, you literally can't recoup, like you'd have to sell so many millions of albums in order to, to make it happen. That, uh, that you just can't survive as a band. And, and I've never understood the model because basically they put these bands out of business, you know, and, and you know, if the whole point is to squeeze them for every dollar, you need them working. But, um, but it is, it's interesting the way that they used to structure these deals and how many poor bands, you know, great bands have been sort of lost along the way because of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, essentially what it comes down to at the end of the day is, you know, you start playing music for the love of music. And, you know, really all you want to do is to be able to play your music, right? Um, But then you invest all this time and energy into trying to, like, create a fan base and get it to a place where it's like a viable business, you know, which is the only way guys can really justify continuing to do it. So it reaches a point where, yeah, it really does matter that you can make a living doing it or not. And it's like if you're selling X amount of records, you know, you should be making X amount of dollars. And if it doesn't, uh, if it doesn't equate that way and it's like, you know, you're not, you're not getting paid for your art and you can't make a living doing it. I mean, this is why bands break up. Yeah. Sure. 
Um, well, so as somebody who's got you know twenty plus years in the business and, and who's awful close to this, we've got a new album out, uh, "Sheep Among Wolves." Can you just talk about the differences, or have you noticed any differences in the way that you know music is done? Uh, certainly, certainly in the last ten years or so, maybe more. I mean, the ability for an independent musician to publish their own music and things like that has obviously you know, come full circle. I mean, you used to rely on a label a lot more for services than now you can do with a, a MacBook Pro. Well, uh, but before we change and jump to that too, on this same topic, on the same album, it's rumored that Atlantic spent almost a million dollars just recording the demos for the album. And well, not the demos, not the demos. Okay. I mean, I think our all-in budget after we recorded the album and marketing and all that stuff, tour support ended up being about a million dollars uh, or more. Uh, which is a lot of money, but uh, they were they were really pushing like pressuring you to put out radio friendly tracks per se, and and uh, you know like compared to that then to now you can do whatever you want and you don't have to hear it from the out the the um, you know Atlantic or Tooth and Nail saying hey we kind of want you to do this we kind of want you to do that. Uh, can you talk about the differences between then and now? versus you know uh just just the way things have changed you yeah, know like, and i think that that's what i was trying to get to was just this idea of you know an independent release being able to do it on your own versus that of, of the old label structure and having that kind of budget to work with versus not right you know well there i mean there's a lot there's a lot to those questions. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. Me, so if it's easier to break it down, you know, maybe let's first talk about you know just sort of putting out music nowadays versus how it used to be. Yeah, I. You know, it's funny. I was watching that documentary on HBO about Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. Have you guys seen? Yeah, that? I saw the, that one. The yeah. Ones? yeah. Uh, and there was a moment in time where Jimmy Iovine, you know, they're walking back through the history of like Death Row Records and um, Aftermath and all that. There was a moment in time when Dre had started focusing more and more on beats, um, where Jimmy Iovine said, it was like 2002-ish, uh, where he basically said, you know, oh, downloading music is going to kill the music industry. This is going to destroy their, their, you know, this is going to destroy everything. And then fast forward, you know, a decade from there, and he basically said, you know, there is no music industry anymore. There is no music industry. That's not a viable, you know, uh, section of commerce anymore in our in our world. Um, and that's literally I couldn't say it any better way. You know, when we started as a band up through 2000, 2001, 2002, before iTunes, before downloading, before Napster, all that stuff happened. Uh, m music was still a viable industry. Um, but as soon as. You know, you could buy a single for 99 cents on iTunes. The whole thing changed. And since then, it's just gotten harder and harder and harder for artists to make a living doing what we do. To whereas now, nowadays, with streaming, and, and this is a big part of the marketing of our new record, streaming doesn't pay anything to artists. And this is the chosen method of most people to, to listen to music now. So it's like, there's no, I have friends who are trying to make it right now in music. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, don't quit your day job. Yeah. Because you're, you're not, you're not going to be able to make a living doing this no matter how many records you sell. Well, uh, so like Radiohead, I think was the first band to kind of do the pay what you want for the music kind of thing. 
Uh, I can't remember the name of the album. I just remember him doing it. And then, uh, you know, I heard of another band that used to upload like four hour long tracks onto like Spotify or something like that and tell their, mm-hmm. their uh, listeners to just play it overnight while they sleep so they could get the, <laughs> you know, the, the, get the revenue coming in from, from uh, Spotify. But um, I've also heard that like artists can take advantage of like Spotify, for example, like they can see where they're getting the most plays and book their, their shows and their tours based off of the play counts from that kind of stuff. Uh, have you ever taken advantage of stuff like that? Or is it, do you have, I mean, the streaming has kind of changed the industry. So to where now it's pretty much merch and tour revenue is pretty much where you make all your income, right? Like, uh, yes and no. Basically, uh, how Project 86 has existed for the, the length of time that we have and the band has remained, remained uh, you know, worthwhile to do in our, in our lives and in my life is the, the dedication of the fan base. And so you know, we have a, you know, a segment of our fan base that is willing to basically embrace the fact that they're our family and they keep our band going. So uh, we've done the last three albums as crowdfunded efforts. And That's each awesome. one has been successive, successively more successful than the previous one uh, just by tapping into the consciousness of... Of the existing fan base, the folks that have been following you all this time. Hello? Are you there? Sorry, I, I hit the mute button. In my <laughs> um, no worries. Not a problem. I mean, we are less able to add the casual fan because um, there isn't a machine behind us spending money to expose the music to new people as much. I mean, there are free resources out there, but it it's challenging to get your music exposed to new people unless you get on a gigantic tour of some sorts or you know, get some sort of opportunity. But what I found is later in the career in order to, you know, we've gotten, we get regular tour offers from major label bands, bigger, bigger bands uh, to go out and tour. But it's always, it's always a situation where we're paying money out of our pocket to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars to go out there for the quote unquote chance to be able to reach some new folks. And usually those just from like a business standpoint, aren't viable business options. Yeah, it just you know doesn't make sense. It doesn't totally make sense to go out and get pennies a night to play for some new people that, that may don't or may really not, under- yeah. yeah, and they don't really understand music. So, you know, maybe half the crowd goes home and listens to us on Spotify on the best possible night. Yeah. Well, that doesn't do anything for us. And on all those residuals, you've made 31 cents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so what we found just, again, from the model of how we structure our approach to doing this thing as an entity is how do we, how do we connect with the, the fans that really love our band? You know, how can we offer them experiences, merchandise, music, access, whatever we can to capitalize on our history. And we have a pretty rich history as a band um, in order to keep this machine, you know, moving forward. And we've been pretty successful at that. 
um, without the benefit of any sort of label or marketing machine behind us in the last three album releases, four album releases. Right. Well, so you mentioned um, crowdsourcing. Can you talk a little bit about that? And just, you know, because this, it struck me as an interesting model. You know, I mean, obviously a lot of people are doing crowdsourcing and stuff nowadays, but uh, in the middle of your uh, discussion there, the thought came to me, well, you know, how would, how would you tell another band to find music? You know, I mean, in your case, you came up in an era where you really worked hard and you, you were on the ground to develop this fan base who's now still sort of carrying you. And luckily they've gotten older like all of us have, and now they have jobs and money and they can, you know, put into, into the folks, into the things they care about. Um, you know, which is really great, but like how might a younger band do it? And I think one, one method could be this, this idea of crowdsourcing. So I wondered if you'd elaborate a little bit on, uh, the crowdsourcing to to produce an album and doing it yourself. And then, you know, maybe a little bit to that idea of, you know, if you were starting today, you know, short of, you know, giving up your art, you know, uh, for practical dollars and cents reason, if you would uh, have any advice for a starting band or somebody trying to get, get out there in the world, how do you find an audience nowadays? Well, we as a band have been in a unique position because of the passion level of our existing fans and not everybody has that um we've just been really fortunate and uh what the fans tend to say a lot is that you know this song or these lyrics you know really helped me during a time when i was going through a death in the family or a divorce or an addiction or some real life situation where you know this particular song really spoke to me uh and so that's the connection that we have with these people um so it's more band, than just a superficial, I heard your song on the radio and now I totally. like you kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe you know, fans came to know us through something like that, seeing us on a tour or, uh, you know, hearing a song on a website or something like that. But what makes them stick and dig their roots in deep with us is what I just mentioned. Now, that doesn't really apply to most bands. Yeah, true. <laughs> I have friends who contact me who are in other bands and who say things like, well, yeah, I saw that you guys did this amount or, you know, were this successful on this, you know, Indiegogo pledge music campaign, you know, teach me how to do that. And, you know, I always say I would love to. You know, but these are the factors you have to consider. How how dedicated is your fan base? Because all we're doing is we're offering special um, access and experiences and merchandise and, and things that our fans love because of our history with them as a band. And you mentioned like newer bands. It really isn't a viable option to think that you're just going to slap up a crowdfund campaign and all of a sudden get tens of thousands of dollars if you don't have this deep connection with at least you know 500 or a thousand people out there who are willing to like really go the extra mile to fund your record you know because these people are spending extra money you know above and beyond what they would normally pay for a t-shirt or a cd because they're investing in what you're doing well that and actually that requires has to be- pretty cool yeah. because they feel kind of like a part of the project too you know yeah so they, and they, they have to have some sort of vested interest in yeah it. um so stepping stepping back a bit uh coming off of working with atlantic on that album uh you did another one called uh songs to burn bridges by 
And uh, the way I read it was you guys kind of put it out on your own under Team Black Recording, like your that was your quote unquote label at the time, um, and then it eventually went back out with Tooth and Nail. What was the um, it, the the title? Kind of sounds like you're burning some bridges with Atlantic. Is that the case or was it kind of like, you know, you, you had enough, you're fed up, you're throwing in the towel and you're going to do it on your own and then eventually kind of did another deal with tooth and nail. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, there was kind of a creative breakdown that happened on our third album, truth of zeros, because we were, we were in a very difficult situation. Basically our, and our guy with Atlantic was saying, well, we're not going to buy out your record if you don't give us hit songs. And, and, you know, the meeting that took place with us inside the band and management went basically like this. Uh, drummer, bass player, guitarist, manager was all like, yeah, let's write more pop songs. Let's write some songs for the radio. Lead singer, me, said, I don't really want to do that. I would rather write heavy music, heavier music. Like, let's go further with what we, what we were doing on the last record, you know, let's do music on our own terms. Like we said that we were going to, you know, from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, it's in your, the band name 86 be different. Yeah. <laughs> <Get> kicked out. <laughs> yeah. So unfortunately the forces of the label and the money and the dollar signs, I mean, I remember our drummer at the time said to me, uh, you know, I want to get married and have a normal life and have a family. So I either want to blow this band up or quit, you know? And yeah. I was like, that was totally the opposite of what we were setting out to do here. And so reluctantly, I sort of went along with, with the, the shift there. And I think you can hear it in the music. I mean, we have some good songs in there, but it's a much more melodic release. And my lyrical tone is really sort of morbid <laughs> because I really wasn't enjoying the process. Yeah. The previous record, like we just wanted to do music our way and had fun with it and wrote some really heavy material that moved people. And we were just connected to one another and to the music. And there was a, just a total creative disconnect that, that occurred at that point. And the inner band relationships really were strained. And that was sort of the beginning of the end. Um, as far as the original lineup, et cetera, and me. Um, Songs of Bernie Bridges by, I mean, the theme was about, I mean, we parted ways with everybody when we left Atlantic. We, management, label, everything. I mean, we just started over. Yeah. We hit the res reset button. So, uh, and that was kind of more of a record, while still not as heavy as I wanted to do, it was more of a spirit, the spirit behind it was a record that was closer to, to what I wanted to make for the previous one. Um, and I just think about the fact that, you know, the first, the first song on Songs for New Bridges by is one of our most beloved songs in our history. Um, it's a song called The Spy Hunter. And we had originally uh -huh. recorded that and written it uh, for Truth is Heroes. But we didn't put it on the record because we didn't think the label would like it. Because it wasn't <laughs> like a... a pop song you know it wasn't it, it didn't have a, a singing chorus um but if we had just put that song first on that record and i think just rearranged the song order i mean that album probably would have sold double what it did because our existing fan base would have gotten on board immediately with 
that whole thing. Yeah, that uh, hindsight twenty twenty. Do you think it was the right move? To Wait, well, oh, my decision making back then. Well, just to to cut Atlantic and kind of go do your own thing and hit the restart button. Do you think that was the right thing to do? I mean, it was out of necessity. Yeah. Uh, I mean, essentially, we put out Truthless Heroes, and it didn't it didn't sell millions of records like they wanted it to. So, I mean, our time on Atlantic lasted about six months after that, and then we were dropped from the label. Okay. And so <clears throat> it was it was definitely out of necessity. But I would be lying if I didn't say I a part of me saw the writing on the wall very early in the process. It was like this is not going to work. Yeah. You know, like this isn't the band that we started out to be. This isn't where my heart's at. You know, um, we're trying to put a square peg in a round hole to try to give them the songs that they want, so they'll buy out our contract so we can make a living. I mean, none of this is proper thinking yeah, in, yeah. In my well and circling back to our, our earlier discussion about authenticity and music and things like that you know i, I mean clearly you're a, a a person of character who believes in having sort of a, a stance and sticking with it and and uh you know so it can't feel good to be doing something for the sake of it or you know to please other people or whatever and i think you like you mentioned it, it maybe comes out in the music a little bit now i, I i'm i'm a fairly you know I, I'm not a, a, a stupid person, so <laughs> I understand that you have to be able to market what you're putting out there. But m- my opinion has always been your most marketable product is the one that you have an emotional connection towards that you're passionate about. And whether or not that is something that is viewed as commercially viable is irrelevant because my opinion is play whatever music connects with your heart and do it to the utmost of your ability, your talent, your gifting, put a lot of work and passion into it. And if it's good and it's connected to your heart, people will buy it. You know, yeah. buy it meaning they, they'll not buy it, purchase it, but, but buy it, they will, they will believe it. You know what I mean? Like I think of like Lana Del Rey, right? Yeah. Um, I really like uh, specifically her older material, like her first two records a lot. Um, and she's an interesting study in pop music because the style of music that she plays has no connection to what is current. Yeah. You know, she just, she's just the sad girl who went through a breakup and created this sort of persona, but wrote some really great songs just out of her emotions basically. And she, she's really into this like Hollywood throwback noir lounge thing. And it just worked. And it sold a lot of, she sold a lot of records with those first first two releases and it totally wouldn't have made sense to me if i was a record executive that she was you know pitching you know the the release to but i don't think you have to play what is what is current or what the label tells you you have to do well you have to you have to play the game but i think as long as you have that heart connection to the art that you're making, that's your best chance to to get it out there well i mean it boils down to if, if you don't believe in it why would anybody and uh, and so, yeah, so I think that's a really strong point because, yeah, it's just I mean, it's it's true in everything. Right. I, I mean, I work in advertising and marketing and, and you know, that's the, the core of everything. Right. Is how do you how do you write ads that will actually make people feel what you're trying to feel or communicate what you're trying to communicate? And with something like music, you know, I mean, there's very few uh, other 
channels, you know, maybe maybe through painting or whatever, where you can really get as personal and as emotional with a with a human being. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is a a very uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? This this, music is a channel where you can really distribute feelings and be authentic with it. And people can feel it. And if it's inauthentic, you know, people just aren't going to feel it. Now, I mean, good luck convincing a a record exec, you know, and they've been trying to manufacture this for a long time. (laughs) But, um, but I think that, you know, anytime an artist, you know, regardless of trade is, is authentic, I think it's going to go better. So, I wanted to ask you, I was um, trying to find some of your earlier stuff, like your, your first album, uh, and I, I couldn't find it um, other than YouTube. And so I was jumping on YouTube trying to listen to it and check it out. And one of the, the videos that I came across was uh, Evil, A Chorus of Resistance. And that one looked like it was a blast to make the music video for. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, it starts off with you kind of walking into a diner. And by the end of the music video, it ends in a huge food fight. Um, can you just talk about like the creative process behind filming a music video and maybe that one specific? Or if there's one that stands out more to you that you've really enjoyed? Um, just it's a, it's a different animal altogether i'm sure you know because you know you're going into a studio you got all the time in the world to you know put an album together but i i'm sure they just do the videos in like a day or two kind of thing um yeah yeah it's a short shoot uh music videos in general totally suck (laughs) (laughs) they're not fun to film and they're not fun to um write usually because you're really confined in a lot of ways to what you can and can't do by your budget and by it's just challenging because you you're limited. Um, most times, uh, that video that you're talking about, the evil, of course, the resistance video, uh, is the only one that I had no creative say in. Oh, really? Defaulted to our then guitarist. Um, and it's the only video that of ours that I feel like is not really connected to the soul of the band. Okay. Like I, that's my least favorite music video. I just of ours. I oh. just saw it and I was like, going, you know, I mean, that had to be weird to go into a, a diner and start a food fight. And you know, I mean, like, I, it. I get it. I mean, you you kind of have to just do what what they say and kind of go with it. But at the same time, I mean, like, is there? with with other videos for example do you get to like a week to sit down and talk with the producer and say hey this is kind of what i thought this is what i'm envisioning and then kind of have have him go with it or is it more like they kind of just come in and say hey this is what i'm thinking let's do it yeah uh a lot of times the the typical process is you'll have a a a group of directors who are pitching to do the video and they'll create what's called a treatment which is like a, a loose script of what happens in the video and they'll submit that. And then you read through these treatments and pick one that you like for the video. That's the lazy man's way of doing a music video. <clears throat> what I always love doing, and you asked me if there's one that I would recommend that people watch, uh, I would watch the spy hunter and okay. I would watch my will be a dead man. Uh, I'm biased because I wrote the treatments for these videos. Like I essentially functioned as the director. Did you, um, even uh, though I wasn't, 
did you have a producer that? that you like to work with and you just kind of worked with him and said, Hey, this is what I want to do. And then well, have a, him a director, a director. Okay. Yeah. And so basically I came to the director for each of those videos and said, here's what we're doing. Can you execute this? And then throughout the filming and editing process, I was really closely connected to, you know, how the video ended up taking shape. So, you know, a lot more artistically connected to those videos. And I feel like the spirit of those videos matches a lot better with the sound and heart of the band. Cool. Um, the Food Fight video, the problem that I had with it was that type of video suits a goofy punk rock band really well. Yeah. But what appeals to our fan base about this band is not that we take ourselves so seriously, but that the musical content and the lyrical content is of more of a more darker, serious nature. Um, there's tons of, there's a lot of sense of humor within that. And I think over the years, like, especially I can speak for myself, like I don't take myself seriously in it at all, but I like to talk about, things that people can relate to in a real life sense that are heavy issues. You know what I mean? Heavy, whether it's, we're talking something that's social or something that's personal. Uh, I try to look a little, look at things from a little bit more, um, adult perspective, I guess, or a, a real life perspective and even a spiritual perspective. And so the, the food fight video was like the antithesis of <laughs> everything that I am as an artist. But that was the tension that always existed between myself and our original guitarist was, you know, he didn't ever want to be serious about anything. He really was his, his Just heart. A probably would have, yeah. He, he would have fit better in a ska band or something, you know, <laughs> uh, and it was always a pull to try to get everybody, you know, he and I on the same page as to what we were trying to accomplish creatively, you know, <clears throat> and what kind of, you know, narrative we were trying to put out into the world. But uh, you know, music videos are fun when you're connected to the artistic process. Yeah. They're not so fun when somebody else is telling you what to do and you're just lip syncing for a day in a, <laughs> in a warehouse. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> True. So, um, one last question. We're kind of running a little long here and, uh, um, I'm kind of biased on this question just cause I, I went to school for recording arts and, um, I, I always like to pick your brain, uh, with over the 20 year career that you've had, uh, you've had the opportunity to work with some amazing producers, uh, and engineers like Matt Hyde and Garth Richardson and Brian Kallstrom, um, do you have a favorite that you worked with and why were they your favorite and any crazy recording techniques that you, that he had you do, I guess. <laughs> uh, individually, uh, just on like a personal level and just a showing up to work each day and having fun level. Matt Hyde was really great to work with. Um, really creative, you know, really nice guy, really good rapport as far as like how we work together. We worked together on two different projects and, uh, you know, it was, it was enjoyable to go into the studio each day, uh, and work with someone that you felt like a kinship with, you know, yeah. and you have a, you have a relationship with and you could say, Oh, this guy's my friend, you know? Um, 
now, as far as like the best studio experience is in terms of what we got out of it with the finished product. And in terms of coming to the table with our ideas and those ideas being executed just to the utmost was our second album. And that was with Garth. Okay. Um, and it's not that he changed much. He just, you know, got the pieces assembled in terms of the people that we worked with and in terms of what he communicated to us and through us that we got the absolute most out of the ideas that we brought to the table. You know, we said we wanted to make a heavy record, and I think the the thing that he said to us right off the bat was, I don't know if you know this or not, but his name is Giga Garth because he stutters. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know he stuttered, <laughs> but I, I saw that it was Giga Garth, and I was wondering yeah. what the, the that that's hilarious. <laughs> well, it's because he has a sense of humor about it yeah. about himself, so he's making fun of himself with that name. Uh, and so we were we were in the car uh, in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, with him and and he said to us guys guys we are going to make a crushing record <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah and so well his his dad wasn't his dad like a, a pioneer in the recording industry yeah like he uh, just goes way back um he he runs a school up there still doesn't he um, i think so yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's got to be awesome to work with people that just have that level of knowledge and that experience behind them to put out an album like that, you know, and just, I'm sure, you know, you going in as a younger band and working with someone like that just kind of stepped your game up a lot as oh, yeah, well, definitely. you know, uh, there was a band we used to work with called Vaden that uh, through the recording process, they went in with Ryan Green down in uh, Phoenix. Um, and when they came out with their final album, they also had like a backing track and a bunch of other things for their live show as well. That just it it it, it took them from one level to another, and it just night and day difference before and after. And it, it's got to it's just got to be really interesting to to yeah. A good producer can do a lot for yeah. a band. Well, so in uh, in closing, let's talk a little bit uh, briefly about the new album. Uh, Sheep Among Wolves came out at the end of last year. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the inspiration behind the new album, what you're trying to communicate with it, and uh, and anything else we ought to know? Yeah, the album is, uh, as far as the theme and the, the album title and the artwork, and this is the first album where I actually did the artwork myself. Uh, oh, cool. It's very cool. Thanks, man. Uh, it's about the idea of betrayal. And so, you know, heard that cliche so many times sheep and wolves you know uh and it's always used usually in the context the sheep is the good guy and the wolf is the bad guy uh but the play on it in the lyrical content with the album title and the and the artwork is you don't know who's wearing a mask and who isn't and who's the sheep and who's the wolf and maybe maybe the sheep's the bad guy huh you know what i mean yeah and so the album, in many ways, is about relationships and betrayal. Not just like guy-girl relationships, but just like friendships or People associations in general, yeah. and experiencing uh, betrayal where a person you thought was a sheep turns out to be a wolf and vice versa sometimes, too, where someone who initially seems like a wolf in a given situation ends up being you know, somebody who comes in and is a, a positive figure in your life. So, um, yeah, the album... Uh, 
for this deep in our career has some of our most vital songs. And I've heard numerous fans and people in the media say that track one, MHS, it's a pretty heavy track. Uh, say it's top five as far as songs go in our career. So wow. yeah, you know, we've great. had, we've had some late career gems for sure. As far as songs and, you know, that's always the goal, but you, you always hear and witness bands that, you know, when they get later in their careers, you know, they just don't make as yeah, good sometimes music. it's hard to pull it off or maybe it even goes back to that uh, authenticity thing. You know, they get mm-hmm. to the point where they just got to make some money. Um, is MHS your favorite track on the album or is there another that stands out for you? Uh, yeah, I got a few favorites. Um, Sheep Among Wolves, the title track is one of my favorites. There's another song uh, called Copper Wish, which is a, a really uh, creative departure a little bit for the band. It just has some different influences uh, that I think came out really cool. Um, but I think there's a lot of really strong tracks on this record. I'm supposed to say that because it's our, our latest release. <laughs> but whenever, whenever I go into the studio and you know we embark on making something new, I mean the goal is not to just maintain the career. It's to have, again, that emotional connection to the music that's being created. And if you can't find that, don't make the record. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So where is the best place for people to listen to this? I mean, obviously, you can find it on all the platforms, but I think I saw on your website that you guys are running a sale price where if they buy it direct from you, they can buy the album at a reasonable price. And you know, Can you talk about where, where would you like people to go to uh, hear the album and, uh, and ultimately buy it if they're interested? And this gets into my, my message to all the music fans out there. Uh, <clears throat> by all means, listen to the record on YouTube or stream it, you know, uh, if you want to hear it, but if you want to support the band, uh, it's important that you purchase it as well. So yeah. you can buy it, you can buy it digitally, you can buy it on CD and you can buy it on vinyl from us at project86.com. And that, that goes directly to the artist. And for a band like us, who's independent, you know, we're not selling millions of records or anything like that. Every time somebody buys one of our records, it means something tangible to us so i just tell people in the age of streaming you know if you support a band you know there's nothing wrong with streaming the music to listen to it you know it's convenient but if you support a band buy the music sure and uh and it is easily uh found just at project86.com uh they've got a digital store where uh, as you mentioned you can buy it digitally uh, as well as order the vinyl the physical cd whatever um, you also have some t-shirts and other things there and, uh, tour dates and all that good stuff. So, um, I guess with, uh, without any further ado, check out the new album. Uh, Andrew, anything else you'd like to say before we get out of here? That's it, man. I think we covered a lot of bases. Yeah, yeah we, we did. did. We were a little all over. Sorry about that. But it is really interesting to talk to you about, uh, about a number of these things. Uh, you, you've just been in the game long enough and experienced enough, uh, you know, and, and continuing on. That uh, that it's really interesting to kind of pick your brain and hit all these different these things. So um, learn more about the band. Check them out at project86.com. You can also follow them on Twitter at uh, project86band and on Facebook at project86. Uh, once again, our guest was uh, Andrew Schwab, and he uh, lead singer for Project 86. Uh, go check them out. Support the band and uh, catch them on tour when you can. Yeah. And uh, check out our website, eggscast.com, and uh, Instagram, all that fun stuff. Hit us up there. Yep. So. And we'll also put links to everything in the show notes. So if you have any questions where to go for uh, your Project 86 wares, uh, we'll have it all on the website for you. 
So uh, with that, thanks again so much, Andrew. Appreciate you and really appreciate your time. We went a little long, kept you a little long, so I appreciate you. No worries, man. Thanks for the time. It's really fun to talk about this stuff. Yeah, of course. Cool. And uh, with that, uh, we'll see you next week.